And welcome to Small Screen Science, the podcast that explores the hidden and fascinating science behind our favourite TV shows. I'm Karen. I'm Emma. And today we're looking at the science behind one of my all-time favourite TV shows. I'm thrilled. It's the incredibly popular US sitcom The Office and American Workplace. Absolutely we are. Nice. Um, so as with all of our podcasts, we try and sneak in as many um, show quotes as we possibly can. Um, and you can play along as you listen to the podcast and see how many you can spot. And we'll give you a list at the end. Yes. Yeah, so that was the first one there. Absolutely. Uh, always snuck into pretty much every season of The Office. Um, <laughs> now, listen, I've already confessed that this is pretty much my favourite TV show. And I I was wondering whether to admit to how many times I've seen it, but I will, I won't put a number on it, but I will say it's upwards <laughs> of 10, uh, apart oh, from season eight when Steve Carell left and things just went a little bit weird. But anyone else who's seen the whole thing will, I think, agree with me there. Um, but then, you know, you get back in for season nine, you get quite a satisfying finale in the end with the, the old writers and production crew. So uh, I forgive them for season eight. <laughs> what about you? Are you a fan? I think I've just shown my true colours there as a bit of a, an office nerd. But... <laughs> I mean, I'm a big fan of the American office. I've only seen it, actually. It was one of those lockdown viewing things that I did oh, yeah. just to see it because I I just could not cope with the British office. I found it really, really cringeworthy. Mm. And um, David David Brent, just I just couldn't cope with it at all. No. Um, so the American office is done slightly differently. Some of the some of the storylines are the same, aren't they? But but yeah, I could watch that one. I found the American one much funnier. But actually, that's that's quite an interesting comment to make, actually, about the cringe, isn't it? Because there is science behind cringe comedy. There is, yeah. So the reason why we find it cringy is because we're feeling empathy for the characters. So we've been in that position ourselves quite often. Um, and we're feeling empathy for Pam and everybody around, you know, by around having, the main yeah, character. By having someone as awkward as Michael Scott making jokes around you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's so it's about um it's about empathy. So if you find any any comedy cringeworthy, it's because you're empathizing with the characters. Okay, so we don't so the idea is to not produce too much empathy because then the level of cringe is too high, is that what we're saying? Yeah, I think well, you do need you do need the cringe, don't you? Because it's that type of comedy because yeah, it's a supposed bit to of be it. mm. I mean, the first office was based um at a time when you know, reality TV had really started and we've mm. got a lot of shows where you were watching people in real life. So it was supposed to mirror that. And of course, anybody who's worked in an office will have worked with somebody like Michael Scott or David Brent. So Yeah, absolutely. Um, Who is your favourite character? Uh, Dwight, obviously. I thought it would be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought it would be. <laughs> the He's so nerd. funny. The, yeah. writing, the writing for his character is just spectacular. Mm. Yeah. How about you? Oh, it's got to be Jim. Oh, Jim yeah. can do no wrong in my eyes, not just because I think he might be my soulmate, but he's he's just very he's funny, he's kind, he's compassionate. Mm. He he's the glue, I think, for most of the series. Both Jim and Pam, I think, are the glue for everything else that goes on around. Yeah, because even though they tease Dwight and that kind of thing, they keep him on board, don't they? And if if they weren't teasing him, I don't know what he'd do with himself. He needs 
Dwight, the Dwight's character needs that kind of fight, doesn't he, to be happening all the time with people? He does. That's a good point. He's a man mm. on a mission, so yeah. to give him many small missions, I think, yeah, keeps keeps him keeps him going. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Bless I mean, him. I I love it. You mentioned there that you watched it over lockdown, and I think mm. that's what quite a lot of us have done. I mean, it's one of the most. Uh, I think it was the, it was the most streamed show in America in 2020. Yeah. So Americans cumulatively binge 57 billion minutes of it, which is a lot. And I can't even over, comprehend that number. I no, I need that put in like years to to make some time for me. But um, and and essentially, I think we saw a huge rise of people watching old shows. Um, and it's and it's this nostalgia element, isn't it? Mm. And comedy worked really well on this kind of binge watching old nostalgic shows because it works on many levels. You know, actually watching a comedy, it helps to you know lower your stress. Uh, responses it releases positive hormones like dopamine when you laugh but also it particularly in 2020 when we were all having a really tough year um Mm. just leaning into that nostalgia and taking us back to a time uh pre-pandemic when things were a little simpler (laughs) a little funnier a little kinder Uh, Mm. i think you can really see why nostalgia played a huge part in our in our viewings that year yeah yeah definitely so what we're going to do is go through all eight seasons um, but we're going to stop off at some of our kind of favourite science adjacent moments from the show. But I feel like we need to kind of start with the obvious thread, uh, which transcends any individual episodes. Yes. So what can science tell us about office relationships? I mean, that is the main thread in the whole thing, isn't it? Is Pam and Jim. Will they, won't they at the start? And then yeah. when they get together, you know, how that relationship works in an office situation. But it's not just Pam and Jim, is it? There are mm. so many office relationships. Yeah. We've got uh, Michael and Jan, Michael and Holly, Angela and Dwight, Angela and Andy, uh, uh, Phyllis and Bob Vance. Like, we've got Kelly, a and, lot Ryan. Of, Kelly and Ryan, the most yes. spectacular of all of them. <laughs> it really is a show about relationships almost more mm. than it is about an office. Yeah, absolutely. So estimates may vary, but it's thought that between 10 to 20% of people meet their spouse at work. That's quite a lot, actually. That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, I wonder if this is going to change, though, now that lots of us are home working. You, you, I don't think you can get the same uh, same vibe over Zoom, can you? No, I guess not. No, I mean, you're not in the same room. You're not interacting in the same way. There's no water cooler moments. I think that's the key, isn't it? No, the scuttlebutt. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, it. <laughs> there were a couple of um, surveys done in the US in the mid noughties and they found out that about 40% of workers admitted to having a relationship with or had dated a co-worker. Well, that's even higher because that, yeah. that's just relationships in general. The figure before was spouses, like full on long term life partners. But yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. Mm. Many flings have occurred. Yeah. And, and it's usually between the ages of 35 to 44 that this this is likely to happen. So are you sitting oh. there, question mark, age 35 to 44 and no. working in an office environment? Because <laughs> uh, if you are. <laughs> no to either. <laughs> but yeah, perhaps, perhaps. Mm. Now's the time. You know, you're, you've gone back to the office post-pandemic. You can make eyes at someone across the across the crowded bullpen. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm. Now, it's interesting because the office was set at a time without social media. And obviously, social media is a massive part of our lives now, including our dating lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time of filming, you know, the crew was starting to use things like MySpace, but it just wasn't as prevalent at all. So if we were to redo the office today and set it in the 2020s, um, it would be so, so different. You know, it would have to address completely different issues as like, instead, you know, like online dating and, and online harassment and stuff. And I think I think that's the beauty of why we 
hark back to a, mm. a simpler time. One of the reasons why we enjoy the office, it all just seems a lot more pure. And um, so when we were looking at the research for this, in terms of actual academic research papers, a lot of the things that I found ended up being things like business or ethics papers. And that's not really what we're going for. Let's get ethical, ethical. I want to get <laughs> ethical. Do, do, do. Why am I always the one who ends up singing? Why is that? Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> you let me write the script to this one. That's um, true. <laughs> so, well, that was a lovely bit of Holly Flax there. Thank you mm. very much. You could have just shouted it if you, if you fancied. I, I wouldn't have objected. Yeah? Um, okay. And anyway, we are, um, so the overall point was uh, we're small screen science, not small screen ethics. Mm-hmm. So I departed from Google Scholar and instead I searched the exact phrase, the science <laughs> behind fancying your co-worker. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, obviously psychology comes in here. Um, Mm. So we found um, lots of bits and pieces and interesting things from psychology. So the first one is pretty obvious, I think, is that if you're working in close proximity to people, that is a big factor in beginning Mm. to fancy someone. And you can often spend more time with your co-workers in a week than with someone you live with or a roommate, which if you think about it, that's quite shocking, isn't it? it? That is a lot of time. Because although you spend a lot of time at home, most of the, like, a fair old chunk of that, you're asleep. That's not quality time, is it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you do have to be awake at the office. So research from, I think, the University of Kansas says that it takes us around 2,000, sorry, 200 hours to become, like, best friends. Mm-hmm. So I think we can even assume that even, even when the whole thing starts, Jim and Pam have probably well over 200 hours of chat by reception and pranks. So they... They've obviously got a really good foundation here, not just for best friendship, but for a relationship. Mm, for that little bit more. <laughs> um, so uh, working with someone can also give you the chance to see how they problem solve um, and how they act under pressure. So mm. problem solving is sexy, everybody. And it's Hello. useful to it's a useful thing to know about a life partner because, mm. you know, you are going to come across bumps in the road and, and seeing how somebody copes with stress and copes with problems that occur can show you what they're going to be like if you decide to, you know, have a relationship with them. And psychologists have also shown that when two people achieve a common goal together, a unique relationship's formed. So if you are working together, problem solving on the same problem, you're getting a lot of information about the people that you're working with. So you've got this trust, a bit of give and take, and that can lead to intimacy. So if you find yourself on a task group with someone fairly regularly, Maybe, um, and then maybe you start thinking, oh, they look quite good today. Maybe maybe keep that in mind. Maybe think it's because I'm always in the same task force with this person. And it, yeah, like you said, maybe I'm just finding their problem solving sexy, not necessarily them. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's also thought that, you know, the intensity that we experience in work situations can be quite similar to and sometimes mistaken for the, the kind of intensity that we find in like new sexual relationships. And so that can be one of the drivers to kind of feeling attached to, to a new person. And conversely, while these kind of intense feelings and intense tasks can help speed up a relationship, the flip side of this in the office is actually just spending years around each other can develop into a slow burn of a relationship. And I think if we look at it, I think Jim and Pam kind of fit both categories. We know they have a slow burn. We know they don't get Mm. together for a good number of years, but they've also spent so much time making pranks and and messing with Dwight and Mm. they really... They, and, and managing Michael, who's high maintenance. Yes, definitely. So they really like tick that task fulfilling criteria. They they really do team up. Yeah. Um. So shall we get on with exploring some of the key science moments and answering those questions that they throw up? Absolutely. I have a lot of questions. Number one, how dare you? 
<laughs> Kelly Kapoor, queen of the quotes. <laughs> oh, she is fab. She's mm. amazing, isn't she? I just love her. She's my number two behind. Is Dwight. she? Mm. Ah. I think Mindy Kaling had a lot of fun writing herself as Kelly, mm. and a lot of people have said afterwards that as the series evolves, Kelly becomes less original Kelly and just eventually becomes full, fully just Mindy, <laughs> just having fun with herself. It's, it's great. I love it. Yeah, brilliant character. Right, shall we start with series one then? Yes. Okay, so let's start our chronological journey through the office with the first episode of the first series, the pilot. And what's interesting is the pilot does look different to the rest of the series. It's quite interesting when you watch it now. It is, it's because it really closely mirrored the um, pilot of the UK office. Mm. And then eventually once it got picked up, the show creators were much more able to kind of make it their own and suit it more towards American audiences. And in my case, more towards me, because I really didn't <laughs> like the British version. Um, so let's let's dive straight in then with the first prank mm. that Jim pulls on Dwight. And this is him putting his stapler in a bowl of jelly. Um, and again, something that we also see in the British version of The Office. So spoons at the ready. We are turning to science to ask, <laughs> what even is this mysterious wobbly stuff? Like, How does jelly even work? Tackling life's big mysteries here. Yeah, so uh, jelly is mostly made of a protein called collagen, which forms something called gelatin. Mm. Um, And this is basically a connective tissue protein. It's usually found in skin and bones, which, uh, heads up everyone, that gives you an indication of how it's made. Um, So (laughs) most gelatin is produced from pig skin because it contains about 30% collagen by weight. So definitely not for vegetarians and vegans. And if you boil up animal skin or bones in water, these collagen strands will leave the tissues and react with water to form this gel or gelatin. Um, So it's made from boiling up bones and skin, basically from leftovers from the meat industry. Mm -mm. I think Percy pigs are a great alternative sweet um, that don't have gelatin in that spring to mind. Um, So if we have a look at the structure of gelatin, we can work out how jelly actually gets its kind of wobbly properties. Gelatin molecules are really, really long. They can stretch quite a long way without breaking. And they've got this triple helix shape. So a lot of us are familiar with the structure of DNA and we know that's a double helix, which is basically like a a ladder with kind of two vertical poles and then lots of adjoining slats in between, which is then twisted, rotated. And so a triple helix is exactly the same, except it's got three vertical poles and then that's all kind of twisted as well into a spiral. So... What we do is when we add hot water to a block of gelatin, which is what we generally tend to do if we're making jelly as a pudding at home, is we denature these and we break down these structures with this hot water. So all of these long strands kind of untwist, uncoil, and they become long filamentous strands. And these strands actually attract water molecules. And the more water they attach to it, the less water is then free and able to pass through the mixture, Mm. which means the mixture actually thickens and gets much harder. That's what she said. I am your biggest flan. Uh, So as it cools, these helix structures start to reform, but they don't reform in the same way they were. They actually start to get all tangled up together. And they're so long, you know, they're trapping water molecules in between them and they're holding it a bit like a web. And and that's something that helps it wobble. So that's jelly that we eat. Now, um, obviously, we add sweetness to it and food colourings as well as the gelatin. Mm. And we also use gelatin in baking. So if you thicken sauces, for example, like gravy, you can have gelatin in that. And we know that jelly, where it can be solid enough to hold itself up. uh, But is it strong enough to actually hold a stapler in it? Just normal jelly that you would make, you know, on an everyday basis. 
Well, this is this is the big question. I'm going to assume mm. from the science of jelly and gelatin and from <laughs> actually seeing this plate of jelly with a stapler mm. in, I'm going to assume that Jim, or rather the prop makers, would have had to use a jelly mix with a really high gelatin content to be able to suspend something really heavy like a stapler in it. Yeah. But the big question about jelly, solid, liquid or gel? What do we think? Kind of, kind of has multiple properties there, doesn't it? If you if you go back to school when you're told that matter is one of three things and three things only, solid. It's actually a col- colloid. So this is like one phase of matter is mixed in with another. Um, so you've got um, the water as a liquid phase, and that's trapped in the solid structure of the gelatin. So you know you were mentioning the gelatin being quite fibrous. That acts as like a matrix and it traps the water molecules inside it. So that's why it's it's wobbly. So it's a colloid. Mm. So uh, mayonnaise and marshmallows are other examples of colloids. Interesting. So mm. marshmallows is the air is what's trapped. That's quite cool, I thought. Yes. Trapped in a matrix. Mm. That sounds like a film. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do a different episode on that. Um, so did you know there are actually vegetarian alternatives to gelatin? You can get um, agar and carrageen, which are both natural gelling agents that you can find in seaweed, which are often used. Yeah, and, and a lot of us will recognise agar from our days at school, maybe, where we made agar plates to grow bacteria on. You know, um, wash your hands and don't wash your hands and put your hands on the agar plates and see what horrible, horrible things are growing mm. on your hands. Back yes. in lab days, yeah. Yeah, microorganisms, delicious. Mm. So from series one and a scene where Jim is at odds with Dwight to series three, episode 19, The Negotiation, where Dwight actually leaps to Jim's aid as Roy, uh, Pam's ex-fiance, charges into the office. He's just found out that Pam and uh, Jim kissed and uh, he's he's ready to punch Jim in the face. And Dwight, a man who is known for one thing and one thing only, and that's having weapons at his disposal at all times. <laughs> all sorts of weapons. <laughs> leaps up and heroically sprays Roy in the face with pepper spray, which mm. in turn ends up getting uh, a lot of the other people in the office. Yeah, well, after all, the eyes are the groin of the face. It's so random, but it makes perfect sense. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so if... <laughs> they're the thinking... best bit and then the most easily damaged. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so the big question is, does pepper spray contain pepper? I mean, it sounds like it does, doesn't it? So it is a spray. It's an aerosol spray that contains capsaicin. And this is normally found in chilies and in peppers. So yes, it does contain pepper, but... The bell pepper, chili pepper, pepper, mm. not uh, salt and pepper, pepper, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> That's my tongue twister for today. Um, it causes temporary blindness, believe it or not, for about 15 minutes and pain and breathing problems as well, because if you inhale it, obviously it affects the lungs too. Mm. So it does this by dilating the capillaries in the eyes and it also inflames all the mucous membranes. So that is your eyes. And like you said, in your nose, your throat and your lungs, uh, and that can make it harder to breathe. And these kind of impacts can last in some form for around 24 hours, which is actually quite a long time. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty nasty and banned in the UK. So it comes under the Firearms Act of 1968. You may not hold pepper spray in the same way you may not hold a gun. So it carries the same legal penalties that carrying a gun does. I quite like that. I think that's quite cool. Mm. Now, it's um, it's not banned in the US, but it is under certain restrictions. And Dwight uses it in self-defence. 
And in the UK, we do have self-defense sprays, but obviously they're not pepper spray. But often they're not harmful. They're just actually designed to like mark an attacker. So things like invisible inks and dyes, which makes them much easier to track down later. And something that happened literally this week in mm. the perfect timing is that we've had the first case in the UK of someone actually being prosecuted and jailed for domestic abuse in a case where this forensic spray was sprayed on that person. It stays on them for up to six weeks. It stays on your clothes for longer. And it glows under UV light and it was actually used to help tie someone to a certain crime. Fantastic. That's amazing, isn't it? Absolutely Brilliant. amazing. Brilliant. But in the US, as we said, you can buy pepper spray in some states, but there are limits on the amount or the size of the canister or the strength. And most of them contain 2 to 10%. And the police use it. And it's considered a personal defence weapon in the US. So it's also used in forms as of bear spray as well for bears. But I think that, that adds even more layers to the, the fact that Dwight has pepper spray because he's yeah. kind of obsessed with bears. So, of he course, is. he's ready to tackle a bear in the office. Yeah. Of course. Well, you never know. You never know when a bear might turn up. Any time, any time in Pennsylvania. Um, <laughs> now, this is so Pennsylvania is where the office is set, and you are legally allowed to buy, carry, and use pepper spray, but only for self defense purposes. And also, you have to be 18 and you can't have any felonies on record. So, we can assume that Dwight got it through legal means. Now, big question Have you heard of the Scoville scale? I have, those... but I've not pitted myself against it. <laughs> <laughs> now, those of you who are into your vindaloos and your really hot curries and eating chilies and that kind of thing, we'll have heard of the Scoville scale mm. because this is a scale which tells you how strong the chemical is inside the peppers. So it's called the Scoville heat unit scale and this measures the heat of the peppers. So let's have a look at a few peppers, shall we, and see where they appear on the Scoville scale. Go for it. We need to get um, one of those like sliding boards. Yeah, <laughs> so... At the bottom of the scale. I'm imagining Ainsley Harriet style. You remember in Get Ready, Steady, <laughs> oh, Cook, yes. where the palettes just come up. Like, the red pepper, <laughs> green red pepper. Oh my gosh, yeah. Back in the day. Oh, that's taken me back. <laughs> a bit of nostalgia there for everyone. Um, so a bell pepper, like the peppers on those scoreboard cards, zero. Right. Now, that surprises me because, I, I, you know, I know they're not hot, but you wouldn't think they would be zero on the scale, would you? But anyway, there you go. A uh, jalapeno, jalapeno is mm. two and a half to five thousand. That makes me feel quite badass. Had some jalapenos on my nachos yesterday. Nice, yeah. So pepper spray uh, used by law enforcement officers in the US. Hold on to your chairs, everyone. <laughs> five hundred thousand to two million. Scoville heat unit. That's that's bad, isn't it? If I if yeah. I think about inhaling a bit of jalapeno the wrong way and the agony that that causes, mm. or you're chopping chilies and you rub your eyes. Oh, yeah. You know, so we're talking a hundred thousand times worse than accidentally rubbing your eyes when you're cutting chilies. Gosh, that is a lot, isn't it? Hard pass. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but do you know what to do if you're sprayed with pepper spray? Absolutely, I do. <laughs> um, now capsaicin doesn't dissolve in water so apparently washing in water doesn't always really help and actually it can spread it further across your skin so mm -hmm. things like baby shampoo and milk or oil-based solutions are something that's going to be more effective although some papers have actually debunked this a little bit um and having said that it is still very much recommended that if you get it in your eyes rinse them out with water blink to generate tears get that contact lens solution in there definitely don't just leave that in your eyes yeah, and mentioning contact lenses, actually, yeah, take them out. 
Mm. move somewhere with fresh air take off your contaminated clothing you know all the classics if you get any kind of contamination on your body Mm. and medical professionals often use wipes and saline solution to help Um, but to be honest saline solution is your go-to if you get anything in your eyes anyway isn't it absolutely yeah Mm. yeah well thankfully the cast of the office didn't actually need to do this uh, because obviously they weren't going to use real pepper spray angela kinsey and jenna fisher who play angela and pam they also have a podcast called Office Ladies, and they have a they basically share the process behind each episode and all these behind the scenes bits. And in what in the one where they talked about this episode, they revealed that it was just water. So it's just really good acting, looking like they were all in pain. <laughs> yeah, they didn't have to feel God in this chillies tonight. No. No. So <laughs> let's head to season five to see how our favourite branch is doing mm. in episodes one and two, weight loss. Yeah, so we opened the series with several new facial hairs. This is the classic facial hair one. Do you remember? It's so funny. Um, when, uh, you know, Ryan grew a goatee and Andy and Michael copied and everybody had a goatee beard and it was all a little bit creepy and a little mm. bit copy, copy the boy. Very funny. Um, but there is science behind uh, why we have beards. I know. Well, so... not us personally, obviously. Although I'm, I'm getting there. Once I, once I, once I get a little bit older, I might start growing my own. Going for the mustache. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for the chin hairs to to arrive. Yeah. <laughs> to start appearing. Um, well, so uh, there's this the wonderful thing called the Ig Nobel Prizes, and this is essentially we all know the Nobel Prizes, which are given to huge advancements in science and discoveries. The Ig Nobel Prizes are given to prestigious pub science and just pieces of very real but very nonsensical research. And one of the Ig Nobel Prizes that was uh, given out last year actually went to a team who tested a hypothesis that maybe there was an evolutionary reason why we produce (laughs) beards, and that is to protect men from being punched in the face. (laughs) Honestly. So it it was published by the University of Utah, and it basically looked at the fact that when human males fight, most of the time it's hand to hand combat, and most of the time the pace that they they aim for is the face. Mm. So there would be like an evolutionary need. To protect one's face. Hmm. Did you did you read about this one? Yeppers. <laughs> what did I tell you about yeppers? <laughs> um, so basically what they did in order to do this is they built a fake face the way <laughs> so you do. Funny. You know, what did you do today at work, love? I built a fake face. <laughs> so funny. So they got a composite together um, and it got texture and density that was very similar to the face and facial bones and that kind of thing. And what they did was they uh, tested a furred skin version Versus a sheared skin version. So a hairy <laughs> beard versus and no non-hairy. Beard. <laughs> beard just, or no beard. I just, it was just the fact that they used the term sheared. Sheared. Not shaved or anything that we're used to. <laughs> sheared. Brilliant. And what, they, and what they found was that hairy samples were capable of absorbing more energy than the hairless samples. <laughs> How fast were they hitting the composite? Fast. Somewhere between a snake and a mongoose. <laughs> A classic Dwight sign there. So good. I love that his points of reference for speed are snake and a mongoose. Snake and a mongoose. Um, So the total energy absorbed was 30% greater in the hairy samples and the peak force received by the fake bone was lower and that suggested that a full beard would protect vulnerable parts of the face from damage if you were punched. Mm, I don't know how much their pathetic goatees would have helped them, but <laughs> that's true. Yeah, mm. we're talking about full-on beards here. Yeah, we're yeah. talking big, Beardy beards, big kind of Icelandic Viking beards, hipster yeah. beards. Yeah, yeah. a hipster, hipster beard. And so, with this research, there were also suggestions around um, increased testosterone levels because often that's paired with increased facial hair. 
and also potentially a proclivity to fight and be aggressive. Mm. Mm. After all, nostalgia is truly one of the greatest human weaknesses, second only to the neck. <laughs> Dink and flicker. Dink and flicker. <laughs> Some of these are quite badly shoehorned in, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> uh. So time to talk about our feline buddies, I think, next, because Angela is absolutely obsessed by her cats. And there is an episode in season five where she uh, she goes home to see her cats and we can see what she's up to on the old cat cam. Yes, yeah, season five, episode 17, Lecture Circuit Part 2, and it's absolutely horrible. Angela set up this this cat cam so she can watch her cats. She leaves it on while she goes home and Oscar and Kevin sneak on round her desk and basically watch her talking to them and then cleaning and actually mm. physically licking her cats. So I feel like, uh, what, what a weird thing for them to have written, Angela going home to lick her cats. Lick her cats, yeah. I'm sure there's a Michael Scott joke in there somewhere, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> I told you you weren't going to be the only one singing. <laughs> Horrible. Bit of Andy there for you. Yeah. Um, but instead of looking for it, let's, Go to the 2021 Ignobles again, because, um, you know, if you're going to communicate with your cats, you need to do some proper research into what's happening, don't you? So what a load of scientists, biologists did was they had a look at all of the sounds that cats make to humans and try and work out what it is they're saying. So they looked at the purring, the chirping, meowing and all those other things to see, you know, what does cat human communication look like? What are the cats trying to say? bonkers absolutely mm. bonkers if if angela was a scientist this would have been written by her mm. um we don't fully understand how cats actually even produce a purring sound but most recently research suggested it's from a very rapid twitching of the vocalis muscle mm. and interestingly cats will they don't just purr when they're contented but they'll also purr when they're hungry or stressed or even actually producing it as a behavioral signal to show that that cat is not a threat mm. so how about cat human communication so there's lots of different call types. You've got chirping, purring, meowing, trill, moaning, hissing, growling. Um, and the pitch is actually just as important as the melody. Both of those change as they're communicating with the humans. And what the team did was they looked at how cat sounds are produced and articulated. They analysed the phonetic qualities of them um, and, and they recorded, obviously recorded them in order to do that. Yeah, so essentially the idea was that if they can better understand how cats are communicating and the sounds that they're making, we can probably try and use that information to improve their welfare and well-being. And that just seems like the kind of study that Angela would at the very least sign up to be a part of. Yeah, she would I be so, so yeah. desperate it's to understand what her cats were saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so from one accountant to another, let's keep it in the accounts department, shall we? Let's have a look at Kevin because he is infamous for many things, but one of which <laughs> is his stinky feet. I know, his stinky feet get mentioned in, in more than one episode, but <laughs> they really get their own actual storyline in uh, Series 6, Episode 4. Um, <laughs> this is Niagara. So this is Jim and Pam's wedding. It's one of the, the most iconic parts of the entire office. And essentially, Kevin, he leaves his shoes outside of his hotel room door overnight uh, in the hope that they'll be cleaned. And they're so stinky that the hotel has to dispose of them. Incinerated, actually. <laughs> Um, so, of course, we had to look at the science behind smelly feet and try and work out, you know, why are the feet smelly? Naturally. Our bodies are home to more than 10,000 different species of bacteria. Some of those live on our skin. And we're talking about uh, staphylococci here and uh, brevi bacteria. 
And what these do is they digest dead skin. So that's good, a good thing. Mm. Um, but in the process of doing that, they release S-methyl thioesters as a byproduct. And these contain sulfur. And it's the sulfur that gives the smell, the stink. Because, you know, when you get rotten eggs and that rotten egg smell, mm. that's sulfurous compounds as well. So it's that kind of sulfury, mm. sulfury goodness. Sulfury goodness. <laughs> the new branding campaign yes. from Brody Bacteria. Um, and we, we get them all over our body, but in particular, they really thrive in our sweaty regions. So our feet are often one of the sweatiest parts of our body. You know, they create a, a moist and a salty environment. It's full of glucose. It's full of amino acids. They all come from the sweat, which basically the bacteria absolutely love. Uh, so the more they love it, the more they thrive, and the more of these fatty acids and sulfur-containing compounds end up in Kevin's shoes. Yeah. But, you know, we all, all our feet sweat. So, you know, if you want to make sure you don't end up with stinky feet, basically you need to make sure that you your feet aren't sweaty, moist, and warm you know, the whole time. So if it is a warm environment, try and wear more open-toed shoes. Uh, washing your feet regularly, obviously. Um, changing to dry socks is a good one. Um, but you can also buy socks that have got things like silver in them or zinc oxide. And these are antibacterial compounds. So what they'll do, so even if you are sweating, they'll prevent the bacteria from growing. Amazing what science can do, mm. isn't it? All, in, all those <laughs> nanoparticles. You always hear about nanoparticles, but nanoparticles in your socks is a good thing. Kevin clearly needs some. Um, mm. With some shoes as well, things like trainers, a lot of them can be popped in the washing machine that can remove all of the residue, shoe sweat, and the bacteria that have then moved from foot to shoe. Um, and uh, you mentioned, of course, that you could wear breathable shoes. But um, quite honestly, I think that if Kevin had worn open-toed shoes to the wedding, <laughs> he would have been kicked out. I think those uh, tissue paper boxes that he used yeah. as a substitute were much I've more appropriate. i about that. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so some of these um, bacteria are also responsible for the volatile chemicals that um, we, the stink, the, you know, you know, some cheeses are really, really smelly and you think, mm. well, that smells like smelly feet. You're absolutely right because it's the same bacteria, basically. Oh, really? Um, so Limburger cheese is a particularly good example of using the same types of bacteria. And that's oh, right. why it smells similar. I don't think I've ever had Limburger. No, I will know never to order that if I see that on a menu. <laughs> um, another fun fact, the malaria parasite apparently actually changes a mosquito's sense of smell so that they're more attracted to human odours, including smelly feet. Mm. And that's obviously because the, the bacteria, the parasite, needs the mosquito to be attracted to a human, to bite a human, because the parasite will develop inside the human. Um, so it needs to be deposited in them and to be, in order to be able to reproduce. So, yes, you need to have Wash a Wash your feet. Yes. Wash your feet is what we're saying. So I'm going to steer us away from smelly feet now. We're sticking with season six, but we're going to episode 23, Body Language, and item five, point B, the beetroot cleanse. Yes, absolutely. Beetroot cleanse. Oh, my goodness. Um, so in this scene, we're in the conference room. And if you remember, Dwight and Angela have a contract, don't they? They, they have do. a contract to have a baby. And part of that, Angela has to have a beet juice cleanse and to prove she's doing it, she opens her mouth to expose her red teeth and her gums and everything to say, look, I'm definitely eating a beetroot. Oh, it's horrible. doing the cleanse. Yeah. So, of course, for small screen science, it is time for a deep dive on beetroot, which is mm. a vegetable with a sort of oaky afterbirth, according to Dwight. Now, um, <laughs> why is it that he might actually want her to be on a beetroot cleanse? Um, there's actually quite a bit of science behind it, and it could be because of all the good health properties that we find in beetroot. 
Mm. So the betalanin pigments, which are the ones that give the beets this really deep red colour, are also really strong antioxidants and have anti-inflammatory effects. And also the nitrates that are found in beets can help widen blood vessels, which in turn can lower your blood pressure and increase blood flow to the brain. So there's a lot of good things there. Yeah, and you know, if you if you have beet juice in your diet, it's used as a therapeutic nutritional strategy to help control arterial blood pressure or hypertension. Um, so if you've got high blood pressure, beet juice is really good. And it's um, it significantly reduces the risk of cardiovascular events. So, you know, heart attacks and things like that and issues. But it's also dependent on other factors like gender and genetics and all those usual things that you'd expect. But, you know, beet juice, definitely good for you. Yeah. And even even more so than that, a research team in Italy identified that all of these antioxidant pigments, when uh, combined with some of the other components of beetroot together, they have a cytotoxic capacity, which actually can mm-hmm. be used to kill and treat colon cancer cells. And the use of these compounds could actually be become like a widespread chemopreventative tool against colon cancer. So really... I mean, Dwight's, Dwight's on the money with a beetroot farm. Mm. We should all be eating a lot more beetroot. We should all be eating a lot more beets. Um, but if you do eat a lot more beets, just be aware that your poop might turn beetroot colour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how often you examine your, your poop, but that is a possibility. Um, but what you need to do is just watch out a little bit um, for it. Because Dwight, in this same scene that we see, um, you know, yeah, the beetroot juice poo. and everything... <laughs> Yeah, he uh, requests to see Angela's poo. So he says, uh, how do we know this? I'd like to see a stool sample. Hey, like my mum used to say, talk classy, act (laughs) nasty. Um, (laughs) Meredith there, lovely. Um, So essentially, uh, this isn't just Dwight being a bit weird, asking Mm. to see Angela's poo. Science does look at poo when we're talking about beetroot. And it's Mm. all about these betalanin pigments. So normally they are broken down in the stomach or in the colon, but... Some people who have high levels of something called oxalic acid within the body don't actually break down as much of it as the rest of us. So some of the colour does uh, continue to go through your digestive tract and come out to the other end. Mm. But obviously we have to be aware of blood in the stools here at this point as well. Yep. Because Can obviously, look very similar. Yes. Um, so if you do have red stools, do go to visit your doctor just in case. But in order to see if it's, is it beetroot pigment or is it blood? You know, just in case you're wondering and you'd like to... Check it out. Very useful public advice here. (laughs) Yeah. Our blood's heavier than beetroot pigment, so it won't diffuse as far in the toilet bowl. So (laughs) once you've done your stool and you're staring at it for a while, is that that pigment actually diffusing through the water very quickly or not? And then uh, go and see your doctor. Mm. Fantastic. Did you know that actually sometimes beetroot is used to test your your digestive transit time? So basically, if you're wondering how quickly things go through your system, you eat a whole load of beetroot in one point in time and then no more beetroot. You just continue eating the rest of your meals regularly and then you wait until you pass a visibly red stool and then you can track the hours back and actually work out how long food is staying in your system. Yeah, and apparently 12 to 24 hours is normal. Over 24 hours, you've probably got constipation. Yep. Get some more fibre in your system. Yeah. So I think that's a fun little bit of maybe homework for the audience. You can mm. let us know. You can whoomph us <laughs> or just tweet us at small screen sigh. I, I want to see the, your number of hours, but I want no further context. <laughs> I just want tweets with numbers. And I expect to see them coming in in the next couple of days. <laughs> but the big question, the big question to ask is, uh, will bears eat beets? 
That is the big question. And only mm. when watching Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> no, I genuinely tried to find this out, but I just got completely inundated with memes about this scene where Jim <laughs> dresses up as Dwight. He's got his mustard shirt. He's got his glasses. He passes hair in the middle, sits opposite him and goes, fact, bears eat beets. And it just took over the internet <laughs> to the point where I cannot find any real research about bears eating beetroot or not. But it's fine because we can work it out for ourselves because if bears poo in forests, which apparently they do, uh, we just check to see if they've got red stools. Yeah, naturally, of course. We just follow a bear around and wait for it to poo. Like, Yeah, and they just examine great. the stool. You know, mm. no problem. Yeah. Science. Science. I might everyone. not get involved on that research trip. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for this episode. We hope that we left you satisfied and smiling. Mm. And there's plenty more um, that we could have done. We could have talked about lice, alcoholism, rabies, the science of snow and snowmen, how paper is actually made. That would have been the obvious one, wouldn't it? We Mm. (laughs) probably should have led with that. But I think that just means we're going to have to do another episode, which I'm obviously thrilled about because I love the show. Any excuse Mm -hmm. to watch it for the 15th time. Um, But for now, I think we'll just say thank you for listening. We'll Mm -hmm. let you enjoy the rest of your evening. Yeah. I mean, I love an early night. Um, I don't mean to brag, but New Year's Eve. I was home by nine. (laughs) Okay. On that, let's have a quick run through all of the show quotes that we got in. Uh, I think this is a list of most of them. Starting off with, I have a lot of questions. Number one, how dare you? Lovely Mm -hmm. bit of Kelly. Mm -hmm. Let's get ethical. Ethical. That was Holly. That's what she said. Obviously, we had to get that in. We had absolutely, I do, quite a lot of times. Mm -hmm. The eyes are the groin of the face. I feel God in this chilies tonight. Brilliant. Yeppers. What did I tell you about Yeppers? Lovely dialogue between Michael and Jan there. Real mm-hmm. insight into their relationship. Um, fast. Somewhere between a snake and a mongoose. Nostalgia is truly one of the greatest human weaknesses, second only to the neck. Dink and flicker. Lovely phrase there that um, mm. Michael was taught. <laughs> Rid it did did Ugh. Still can't stand doing that one. Incinerated, actually. Item five, point B, the beet juice cleanse. <laughs> sort of an oaky afterbirth. How do we know this? I'd like to see a stool sample. Like my mum used to say, talk classy, act nasty. Woomph. We hope that left you satisfied and smiling. And I don't mean to brag, but New Year's Eve, I was home by nine. That is a long list. Ooh, that's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. So for more from us, search for Small Screen Science on social media or on your favourite podcast platform to listen to some of our other episodes. Yes, we've looked at shows like Killing Eve, Line of Duty, Silent Witness, Blue Planet 2, Great British Bake Off, Red Dwarf, Friends, Stranger Things, you name it, we're willing to tackle it. Absolutely. So thank you very much for listening and goodbye. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.